Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the JMO Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Michaels. Our guest this week, we have fisheries specialist from Fergus Falls, Minnesota, Luke Scalacamp. It wasn't that long ago I realized Luke is a fisheries specialist there in Fergus Falls in Ottertail County, famed Ottertail County, Minnesota. And I'm thinking about all these questions that I would have for somebody, you know, like me, I fish in Ottertail County, but even beyond there, like, we get all kinds of questions into this show, and Jason Mitchell Outdoors, questions about basin panfish bites, and even, you know, questions that might seem sort of simple, like what constitutes a basin habitat? Like, what is a basin in a lake? Well, every lake looks a little bit different on a map, and, and identifying the basin is pretty important in a lot of cases, or even a secondary basin, or, you know, if there's multiple basins on a lake, because that can certainly happen. Now, you know, Luke is going to address some of that stuff, and when we talk about matching the hatch all the time, but nobody ever, like, you know, really identifies uh, invertebrates or, 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 you know, forage base by name. And, and it, it, there's so much research or knowledge that we could gain if we really, truly knew what the hatch was to try to match it. And Luke is going to touch on some things that I think are very informational to, you know, definitely myself and any average angler to learn more about what makes these, these basin panfish tick. And it's just a great conversation Luke answers so many of my questions and more. Gets me thinking about all kinds of other things. But yeah, absolutely. Very educational. We're talking basin panfish biology here in this week's JMO podcast. Luke Scalacamp. Let's get into the interview. Give me like give me like your your life story as it pertains to fishing and your career. My name is Luke Scalacamp. I am a fishery specialist with the Fergus Falls DNR. Um, I grew up in Fergus Falls, and um, I spent a lot of time fishing around Ottertail County, our area lakes. My passion for fishing started with my father. He actually worked for the DNR here in Fergus Falls, and we spent numerous days and hours on the lakes growing up. So that's that's kind of where my passion originated, and that led to me wanting to pursue a career in, in fisheries. Um, I went to undergrad up in Duluth, Minnesota, and majored in biology, and then I went to graduate school at the University of Nebraska and obtained my master's degree um, in applied science with an emphasis in fisheries management. What's kind of the description of your job? Like, like, like as a year goes by and you look back, like, like what, what kind of constitutes your job responsibilities? Give me a little overview on what you do. Yeah, it kind of depends on the season. Um, in Ottertail County, we're, we're lucky. We have so much opportunity, you know, when it comes to angling. And that, that leads us to a lot of opportunities within the job itself. So um, let's just start off in the springtime. We, here in Fergus Falls, we operate a walleye hatchery up on the Dead River, Walker Lake. So that, that takes up a lot of time, actually, um, taking eggs from walleyes and raising the walleye fry in the hatchery and then stocking out the fry in area lakes and ponds. But in the springtime, we also do target surveys for bluegills, black crappie, and largemouth bass, um, as well as muskies and and some other species. And then that kind of leads into the summer schedule, which is our standard lake surveys. That's where we set our trap nets and our gill nets and do population assessments. Then we get into the fall and, and we go back into the ponds, our walleye ponds that we stock with fry earlier in the spring. And we actually capture the, the walleye, which are not would be fingerlings and stock those into area lakes that we designate as fingerling stocking lakes. 
then throughout the winter, like we're doing right now, we are doing all of our data analysis and in writing up our lake survey reports and lake management plans. So it's a, it's a good mix of of work and it, it keeps us busy. And like I said, we have a lot of a lot of water here in Ottertail County and we're pretty fortunate to um to have the resources that we have here. I would say a big percentage of the conversations I have on this podcast talking about fishing opportunities or you know whoever wherever we're talking even state by state uh up in Canada and the provinces like a big conversation in fishing is fishing research and everybody fishing in Minnesota ought to be you know utilizing like the lake finder information you go uh, you know you go online you go to the Minnesota DNR website and there's all kinds of that information i mean that's you you're creating that information that um you know the rest of us are just starving for so i think that's really cool that's kind of like that kind of leads us to why we're here talking to you like why i um am really excited about this conversation and we got a lot of ground to cover so i'm going to try to jump into this now we know you a little bit so I got in touch with you about doing this podcast and I had like a whole laundry list of questions for somebody in your position. But, um, you know, this was like a big learning curve for me because I didn't even really know exactly what I was asking you or if you could even answer all these questions. So I just, I I kind of just want to do this a little unconventionally and read out, out loud the portion of the email I sent you for my questions. Cause I think some people might get a little bit of a kick out of, uh, out of this, but also, um, I kind of want to have like your genuine response to uh, receiving an email from somebody like me like this. So what I wrote you was the topics I wanted to focus on if we could do a podcast would be, you know, the food chain in the basin uh, as it pertains to panfish patterns. Because this time of year, very popular, uh, you know, panfish time of year, late ice, you know, a lot of hardcore anglers really anticipate this time of year. And also invertebrates or you know matching the hatch is a big conversation with anglers and so you know identifying invertebrates as anglers we talk about matching the hatch but I don't think anybody ever really specifically identifies exactly what the forage base is like the scientific names and knowing that stuff I think matters I think you could do the research ahead of time so I asked you about that and um, you know describing feeding patterns and as it pertains to feeding windows and you know why fish set up in certain ways and so anyways i'm kind of paraphrasing but this is what i ask you this is what i want this podcast to be about is uh you know revolves around the ecosystems the basin habitat feeding patterns because i think that anglers ought to know that stuff or it's just good good information that we could know about so so what can you tell me on that man like where can we go from this where do we start that's just like a total like i'm just like a blasting you with this um, but like, where do we start digging up some of that information from so, a smart person like you? Well, when I first received the email, my first thought was, whoa, this is, this is a lot of information. A lot of this stuff is outside of my expertise. So I, I ended up reaching out to sev- several of my colleagues, some of them that are more um, experienced in some invertebrate life cycle and behavior and patterns and and some other people that may have more knowledge than myself. So this was actually a good learning opportunity for me too, you know, to, to gain knowledge on, on some of these topics. But I guess to start, you know, the, the first question being basin habitat, what constitutes a basin? And I, and I don't think that there's, 
you know, one definitive answer of what constitutes a basin. I think, you know, a generalization, you can say it's, it's a deep, flat area, a drainage area within a lake that sediment has kind of settled down into. Um, you know, each lake, if they have a basin, they, there could be many basins, but it's not one definitive answer. It, you know, it, it can vary quite considerably. And even within that area, you know, it, it, sometimes it could have steep ledges. Sometimes it could be, the slope could be very, very flat going into the basin. But I think just, just generally it's, it's kind of a deep flat area where, where drainage happens within a lake, almost, you know, a lake or a pond within a lake itself. You know, I think in some cases, because, and I, I like how you say there's no definitive answer because lake, it's diverse. And you know that as well as anybody you work on in, you know, in a county that you see so many different lakes and they all set up slightly different. I think that's a big message to take away from this is like, you got to identify the basin in your own lake. What, what did you dig up for me on the invertebrate side of things? Sure. So, you know, as anglers, we all, we often want to match the hatch. We're saying, what are they feeding on? You know, that kind of thing. And reaching out to some of my colleagues, there are some aquatic insects that do hatch in the wintertime, but it is fairly limited. I think the majority of the time as anglers, when we say that these bugs are, are hatching, <clears throat> I think it's a combination of things. One being maybe a daily migration of a certain kind of invert. Um, maybe it's the emergence of some kind of you know aquatic insect or some kind of segment worm or some kind of larvae on, on the bottom in the sediment or in the mud flats. But to some of the daily migrations, I think that's kind of what we often assume like on the electronics when we see this a whole bunch of interference or whatever you want to call it on the electronics and say, Oh, look at the bugs are hatching when it actually could be, you know, these inverts that are making their daily migrations. Typically these daily migrations are occurring during low light conditions. So, you know, morning at dusk and dawn and, you know, that could be for predator prey interactions and, and, you know, them being the prey for predator avoidance but um one of the one of the the zooplankton that do make these daily migrations are daphnia i'm sure a lot of us have heard of daphnia but another one that's another zooplankton species or not species but um zooplankton that's within the the water column i think throughout the entire day are copepods and so that gets you thinking well you know like i always remember fishing before all these new the new technology and the electronics and we'd have to wait until dark for crappies to really turn on and get active and then you start picking them off here and there and you know is that now with the technology we can kind of go out and, and search for them and get right over the top of of the the school or whatever but you know it makes you wonder well were they becoming more active at nighttime because that's when these daphnia were making their daily migrations their nighttime migrations up in the water column you know perhaps we're now we're just so effective at finding the schools and dropping you know something that resembles a natural forage like a you know a maggot or a copepod or a daphne or whatever right in front of them and fish being opportunistic they're 
they're just biting it and we can get on top of them so easily. But, you know, before this, we had to kind of either search out and drill a whole bunch of different holes to find where the fish were or just wait until those fish became active at nighttime when I think the, the emergence or daily migration of these inverts was was a lot higher than throughout the midday time. Um, now, there are some other inverts. I don't know if you've heard of midges. There's a phantom midge. It's, a, <clears throat> it's actually a, a predatory fly, but they predate on zooplankton. So they'll actually go around and, and feed on some of these other zooplanktons that fish do too. But, but that phantom mi- midge almost looks like a little wax worm, you know, or, or something like that, a little maggot. So is that a reason why wax worms are so effective because they resemble these phantom midges? Maybe, I guess, I don't know, but it just makes you wonder, you know, during the daytime when copepods are more active than some of these other zooplankton or, or inverts, would something that resembles that be more effective? And then something that resembles a Daphnia or, you know, a, a phantom midge or something like that be more effective during low light conditions, perhaps, you know, then we, we also talked about, you know, some fish being up in the water column and, and some fish settling on the bottom and kind of, kind of cruising the bottom. Well, are those fish on the bottom, maybe they're feeding on some of this insect larvae, like, you know, midge larvae or mayfly larvae or segmented worms or you you always hear blood worms you know midge which are the midge larvae on the bottom so would it be useful to kind of target those bottom fish with something that resembles those those inverts a little bit better maybe you know it's all trial and error i guess i can't say for sure if it would or would not but it's something interesting to keep in mind next time you're out there you know try to target where where those those organisms are inhabiting and what time of the day that that they are um like i said fish are opportunistic you know especially in the winter time they're they're cold they're cold-blooded so their metabolism slows down their respiration slows down they're basically only feeding to survive they're not putting that energy into growth or reproductive potential they're they're basically just eating to survive so you know they're they're feeding on what's available you know if a if a small zooplankton swims in front of them and they're probably going to eat it which is why if you get on fish during the midday after finding both your new electronics you're probably going to catch a lot of them you know at nighttime when they become real active they disperse a little bit more and and the feeding frenzy kind of kind of heats up a little bit but yeah i think it's an interesting concept to kind of break down you know where in the water column some of these most popular inverts are and what time of the day they are most active. So like I said, you know, the Daphnia seem to be making those those daily migrations at low light periods. The copepods seem to be more active throughout the daytime. Um, your larvae, your your midge larvae, your bloodworms, um, mayfly larvae, you know, they inhabit the bottoms more along with your, maybe some small clam species and, and some segmented worms on the bottom. And then with that in mind, um, you know, we know we know that crappies and, and bluegills they eat fish too. They eat small fish, minnows and shiners and everything. And those fish are feeding on zooplankton as well. So, you know, maybe they're following a similar pattern. You know, chasing whatever available invert is available throughout the the day and night, and and that can kind of lead you to to where they are too. You know, maybe the the crappies, the larger crappies, are following smaller schools of 
of minnows, but we certainly know that that uh, panfish, you know, they they definitely eat they eat invertebrates throughout the winter. It's it's high energy at very low energetic cost for them. They don't have to actively chase down a swimming fish. And actually, there is there's some research in Michigan that said that 83 or of all the f- panfish that this study that they caught using hook and line, um, I think it was 83% of them had, had inverts. Yeah. 83% of them had inverts in their stomach. So we certainly know that that's an important food for them throughout the winter. And, and it's a, yeah, it's an interesting concept. And so oh, yeah. I'm excited to, to try out here. The JMO podcast is sponsored by Long Haul Trucking. Long Haul's always looking for more skilled professional CDL drivers to join their team. They're a people-first company, and it shows. Their employee-owned, asset-based fleet of over 350 Conestogas is among industry leaders in pay and benefits geared towards long-term success and growth for company drivers and owner-operators. If you're a professional driver or a company that wants to ship product with the best in the business, get a hold of Long Haul at one 800 255 5153 or find them online at longhaultrucking.com. Long haul, running on the power of promises kept. You said it so well and I think that's you know your experience as an angler you you totally you, you know how to kind of make the science make sense to, you know, the average knucklehead angler like myself. Like you know it it's not a perfect silver bowl. What we're talking about here isn't exactly how you go out next time and catch fish, you know, talking about the type of inverts that live down towards the bottom versus what might suspend up. It's a good starting point though, you know, and then talking about which ones have daytime movement and which ones have evening movement. I love hearing that. That's totally something I have written down after this. I'm going to research that more for sure on the lakes that I fish panfish on because I absolutely think so. I think it helps you kind of decide, you know, your size and your color, you know, your cadence you know, it really fits into a big part of your strategy um, when you're at a, in a peak feeding window and, you know, fish are coming by and they're not biting. You got to make those decisions really, really fast. And um, that just, I feel like I have more tools in my toolbox, so to speak, as far as my decision making. I, I definitely appreciate everything that we're talking about here. But one one thing, you know, you kind of already mentioned it, but uh, or you kind of mentioned it, so I, I want to kind of ask you more directly. Maybe you have a response to this, maybe you don't. But I feel like, you know, with crappies specifically, or even big bluegills, but like getting to this time of year, or even in midsummer, the 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 fish that suspend over basins, you know, talking maybe like fish that are down 15 feet over 30, 35 feet of water, and they kind of spend their time there. They spend their day. We know with forward sonar now that, um, you know, we can watch these fish and, and just see that they they will kind of pick a, a certain, uh, you know, depth zone in that water column, and they'll that, that's just where they'll be, and they'll be there in schools. They'll be there in numbers. Um, you know, one thing that a lot of anglers historically have talked about in those scenarios. When you find fish like that, they're typically more active. They're typically eating. And we've kind of assumed, I think, in a lot of situations that they're more minnow eaters. Or you, you know, we fish them with more aggressive baits that might resemble minnows, and we catch those fish. So we maybe we're assuming too much. Um, but I, I'm just curious what your response might be to that. Knowing what you've known, you know, researching what you've researched for this, like, 
when we find those suspended fish, is it is it that much of a, a minnow thing, or is it still they could be there with an invertebrate diet? Um, and you know, as far as catching them, or you know, why why does it seem like those fish are typically more active than fish you find just sleeping on the bottom? Yeah, I guess one assumption that we can make is, you know, that fish is there for a reason. Um, It's in that depth for a reason. Now, is it maybe the water temperature is slightly warmer than, you know, a different part of the lake or a different different feet in the lake? Maybe the oxygen oxygen level is is a little more um, beneficial to them. You know, who knows? But they're there for a reason, and. And one thing about them being schooled up is, is it does create competition. You know, it may, maybe it makes them a little bit more aggressive when there is a minnow or, you know, waxworm in front of their face. They're going to say, well, if I don't eat it, fish next to me is going to eat it. But when it comes to, to them actually selecting minnows, you know, a minnow on a hook is pretty easy prey. And in the winter, you know, they're going to, they're going to try to, expend the least amount of energy and get the highest energy food that they can. So is there natural prey minnows that are swimming around, you know, in schools that are chasing zooplankton? I I guess I don't have the answer to that. But what I do know is if you put a minnow down on a hook that can't swim away, that's pretty easy prey for them. Um, What I also, I guess, a theory is, you know, when when these fish are, kind of roaming around in schools during the day it seems that that you know there's no real rhyme or reason they're just kind of swimming around and and i think that's where they might be just following the schools of minnows or kind of picking off the you know the zooplankton the copepods here and there and then it almost seems like at nighttime you know like i mentioned before then they kind of really go on their frenzy and they get really active and that's when you know a ton of bugs and inverts and everything are emerging or making their daily migrations. You know, I remember before the forward facing electronics and everything that, you know, Oh, it gets to be sunset and, you know, sure enough, you're going to, you're going to catch, you know, three, four, five here right in a row. And I just feel like they become more active and they, you know, they're swimming around a little bit more during the nighttime when, when some of those inverts are maybe a little bit more active, but during the day they're schooled up and kind of just swimming around, picking off, whatever kind of food they can without expending a whole lot of energy. Really appreciate that, uh, that talker right there. I think that that explains a whole bunch where, you know, you know, just from an angler standpoint, we all just got to fish with confidence. And if you're in a situation where you've got a lake and there's a suspended crappie pattern going on, you know, if, if a jig and a minnow, you know, dead stick, you know, or, or, or a spoon, you know, just whatever your confidence and efficiency is to get up and down and catch those fish is probably just the important part, not necessarily, you know, feeling like we know it has to be a minnow bite um, because it totally makes sense. If they got room in their stomach for a minnow that can't get away, that it's the same type of opportunistic feeding pattern that it would be if it was a tungsten with a couple of waxies on it. You know, they're just ultimately... If there's something there and you're in the right spot, you know, like you can do those things differently and still catch fish. I think that's awesome. You did say something though that I that we're gonna have to touch on if possible. And that was oxygen levels. I think that's another thing that probably positions fish on lakes 
you know, maybe differently lake to lake, of course, but like oxygen levels, fish know and understand their ecosystem and where they're living so much better than we ever would. But how much do you think, or, or, you know, as far as your research, any conversations you've ever had, like how much of a deciding factor is that for fish in certain, in different ecosystems, different lakes that they live in, like oxygen levels, is that true? You can have a different oxygen level in the, a different portion of the water column? Like, talk to me about that in any way, shape, or form that you can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely you can. Um, you know, in the summer, it's 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 obviously different. There's no ice cover, so, you know, the, the wind and the water is is constantly interacting with the air and creating oxygen and the wind is stirring everything up and there's stratification in the summer and a thermocline. Everybody's heard of the thermocline in the winter, in in the winter, you don't have that, that air water interaction to actually, you know, resupply the water with oxygen because of the ice cover. And then we also know that that water is most dense at 39 degrees. So, you know, the, the less dense ice obviously floats up to the top, you know, and, that, and that's why we, we have ice cover. And then the more dense water, which is 39, you know, sinks down. But in the winter, we can also, you know, the deeper you get, you can also have anoxic environments, um, which means that there's no oxygen. And, and sometimes during, you know, at, at the bottom of these deep basins, you know, the deeper they go, you can have areas where there's there's no oxygen so that's a reason why these fish could be suspending above you know the bottom because there is there's they just can't live down there for an extended period of time um another thing is in the winter time you know we know that up shallow you know it's certainly not always the case because we we sometimes catch fish throughout the winter up in the shallow and the weeds and everything but we do know that with decreased sunlight there's decreased um photosynthesis activity and and which reduces the amount of oxygen up in the shallows as well as decomposition of of that aquatic vegetation which uses up oxygen um then the fish that or the the organisms that do inhabit the shallows they also use up oxygen so there's there is an oxygen depletion in the shallows and maybe you know that's a, a driving cause for some of those fish to go to an area where there's a better habitat for them, more oxygen, and there's more available forage for them out, you know, over these basins. But I do think that they are pretty keyed in, in the water column where, where they are, you know, it's an optimal, optimal condition for them, whether it's temperature, oxygen, um, energy required to, to uptake food, um, the energy expended to, to chase after food. You know, I think that they're pretty keyed, keyed into all of their surroundings and environment. And, and there's a reason why, you know, they can survive throughout the winter when, when it'd be pretty difficult to do so. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, I, I, that's the thing, right? It's like lake to lake when you're trying to break it down and then taking it a step further, we talk about it on this show a lot. I, I ask anglers all the time, like, when you're breaking down a panfish bite on certain lakes, you know, um, you know, the bigger fish are typically doing something a little bit different. So it isn't like one pattern explains an entire lake, but it all factors in, I imagine, where, um, you know, if the population distribution is 
say a certain way. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of asking you this to maybe describe, you know, a few different scenarios where, yeah, you know, if you've got a whole bunch of fish doing one particular thing, cause that seems to be what's best. That's the optimal thing. You know, sometimes those older, bigger fish, you know, we find them maybe off to the side doing something different, or we find them a little bit differently in the water column. They might be on top, you know, maybe five feet, six feet below the ice, especially with crappies. We see that a lot of times, or even closer to the ice. Whereas everything else is maybe suspended down 20 feet over, you know, 30 feet of water or whatever, um, or living by the bottom. But like they have to spread out in some way, shape or form. And so, you know, talking about that optimal situation, it reaches ahead when so many of them are doing it. And then the next most optimal thing sort of has to emerge. Talk to me a little bit about that you know, as far as population distributions and, you know, when some lakes have just a whole bunch of, say, stunted bluegills, you might have to describe stunting to me a little bit, like in the science form. We talk about it as anglers when the lake is just full of a bunch of small fish, like what does that really mean? And then, you know, how that kind of redistributes fish into secondary or, you know, even like third type patterns um, a little bit. Like what, what sort of sciencey conversation could we have around that, like population distribution? Sure. So um, I think it goes, you know, you all, a lot of times you see big bluegills hanging together or big crappies hanging together. And like I mentioned before, they're, they're there for a reason. And I think it's, it's, you know, some competitive nature that they're, those bigger ones are maybe fending off some of the smaller fish um, because those resources that they want, you know, they have something for them, whether, like I said, whether it's oxygen or temperature or food availability or whatever it is, but, you know, maybe they're, they're chasing off the smaller ones and the smaller ones kind of have to settle for a less optimal environment because they just can't compete with the, with these bigger ones. Now we see that with, with bluegills during the spring spawn, um, we see the big, the big bull bluegills, they select the best areas in the lake to spawn, um, you know, the best, the best temperature, the best bottom, the best vegetation, um, best depth, everything. And they, and they chase off all the smaller ones. Um, so the importance, you know, as, as anglers being responsible and ethical is, is to release those bigger fish because that's actually what drives the, the overall size structure. It maintains it and drives it up in the lake is, is keeping those bigger fish around because they, the little ones, compete you know, or they try to compete with the bigger fish you Now, when you remove those bigger bluegills year after year after year after year driving the size structure down those those bluegills or those panfish they don't have to put energy into growing big to compete with those real real big bluegills they can put their energy into reproductive purposes um, so they don't have to grow as big. They can, you know, like we've seen some lakes that, that are stunted, like you mentioned, where the, they're sexually mature after one or two years of age. And they're, I mean, they're just three, four inches long because they can sexually mature so early. They don't have to put their energy into getting big to compete with the big bluegills. So yeah, fishing pressure, you know, that can, that can definitely impact fish distribution and size structure. But, um, you know, I, I do think it's it's competitive behavior that kind of drives where those those fish are located in, and the bigger fish kind of seem to to stick together and drive out the smaller ones because of, you know, there's something that is beneficial to those fish in that area. 
Oh man. Yeah, that is very excellent information. Uh, you know, the competitive, um, I don't even know how you said that, like the, the competitive, uh, uh, behavior of fish dictates, you know, just how they function, right? Because it's survival for them, right? Like, like they're, they're trying to survive and reproduce, you know, eat and reproduce. And right. yeah, what an awesome explanation too of talking about the importance of good genetics and, and obvious, and then, you know, ultimately, um, conserving and really protecting those good genetics where, and I've talked about this before when I had Scott McIntune on, we touched on it a little bit, how interesting it is with bluegills specifically, how it's the males that, um, you know, get big that we got to protect. Whereas all these other species, you know, we let go of the big females. Right. Mm-hmm. But like, you you know, and you catch a male, you get a limit of walleyes, you know, it's a, when you clean them and you realize that you had a two man limit of males, there's sort of a badge of honor for that. Right. Because you know that you, you protected the good, the females, you protected the, the, the reproduction and whatever body of water you're fishing. Right. With mm-hmm. bluegills, any time of year, you know, they're vulnerable in the spring when they're spawning, but any time of year when you catch a big bull bluegill, so important that you put it back and it's it's relative whatever is big on your body of water you just got to fish you know enough but we're definitely talking about you know like the nine plus inch fish i mean that's a that's a big fish um you're you're exactly right too you know we know the biological importance of it like i just explained but but it takes those those bigger bluegills it takes a while for them to get to be nine ten you know eleven inches you know we're we're understanding that those bigger bluegills can be in the teens, you know, that's how old they can be. And, and we do see it in Ottertoe County, you know, um, it's a pretty big County and the, in the lakes on the Southern half of our County are a little bit more productive. They have more nutrients, they're shallower. So the, the panfish and most fish tend to grow a little bit faster, but, um, but in the Northern part of the County where the lakes are a little bit less nutrient rich, they're deeper and colder. I mean, a, a nine inch bluegill, you know, it could be, nine years old, 10 years old. So it, it takes a while to replace a, you know, you just think of taking a bluegill off a, off a bed. Well, that's nine years for that fish to be replaced, you know, as a nine inch bluegill. So if you have any fishing memory that you would like to commemorate or have questions about commemorating a fishing memory with a replica made of any fish that has ever graced your net. Get in touch with Rizavi Fish Replicas, owned and operated by Jamie Rizavi over in uh, New Rockford, North Dakota at Rizavi Taxidermy Studio. You can find them online at RizaviTaxidermyStudio.com or find them on Facebook at Rizavi Taxidermy Studio. You can see the pictures here at the JMO headquarters in Devil's Lake. We have some phenomenal replicas made by Jamie and his crew hanging on our walls, which we absolutely love. They look absolutely perfect, just like the fish that were reeled in that day. And every chance we get to go in and admire them and tell those stories and share those stories with each other, we absolutely do. Again, if you want, or if you have any questions about getting a fish replica made to commemorate any great trophy memory you have of fishing, Get in touch with Jamie Rizvi at Rizvi Fish Replicas. You won't be disappointed. Does anybody know like how long on average bluegills live? Like, I mean, if it takes them nine, ten years to reach that, you know, nine, ten inches in length in the right circumstance where it's it can be done and it promotes them to be done, like 
but how much longer do they live beyond that to like spread those genetics and drive those, you know, that competitive nature, like you said, like having big fish, it's more than just genetics. It, it makes everybody else have to grow big too, to compete. Yeah, I, I think it's it's variable. It really is. You know, latitude has a has a big play in it. You know, the further south you go, the faster they grow and and the shorter they live. But you know, you go further to the north north and they grow slower, but they may live a little bit longer. I guess I don't know on average. You know, we see a lot of our um, bluegills. You know, once they that we age, you know, eight, nine, ten inches at around that eight, nine. 10 years old, but one, it gets kind of tough for them for us to age them after that without odalis. Yeah. Yeah. You got to kill them. Yeah. Right. You got to kill them. And that's the last thing we want to do, I guess, is kill a 10, 11 inch bluegill. And then, you know, I, like I said, they, we do know that they live up into the teens. So I, I don't have a, an answer for you as far as what the average is, but I guess to, some lakes in the southern part of the county, we see eight-inch bluegill that are five years old, and some lakes that are in the northern part of the county, we see eight-inch bluegill that are 10 years old. So it's it's extremely variable. Yeah, yeah. No, you definitely, you know, I think for me, just generally speaking, you definitely answered it where, you know, the farther south you go, and you're, we're even just talking, you know, not it's not necessarily like going farther south in the country, although that kind of explains it too. Like the extremes, you, know, you probably go mm-hmm. down south and you know, warm water, Arkansas or whatever. You know, but I mean, even just going south in one county, like Ottertail County, the north, the you know, north and south in one county, having some variables. So you know, lake to lake. I mean, um, you know, if you live in the middle of you know a whole bunch of lakes and you know see you travel an hour north to fish a favorite lake and then you've got another favorite lake that's 30 minutes south of where you live like there could be major differences just in those two lakes just as in terms of growth rates but you know let's stay on the conversation of growth rates I, I think that growth rates explains a lot of biology other biology questions when we're talking about forage base and you know the health of uh, an ecosystem you know just like how healthy and how fertile some water is I think growth rates explains a lot of that too just like in a nutshell so i have a note written down this will probably be like the last thing that we try to cover best we can and you know if i don't say it again tons of great information in this i appreciate it but with growth rates like what is a situation what would be some stories or something that you could tell or reference in your own career you know a lake something that sticks out in your mind that is sort of like the primo scenario for a lake where you work, live and work, where growth rates are fast, fish are healthy, um, you know, the the presence of bigger fish, you know, promoting more growth, that competition, that that drive, like like what is like a scenario or a lake scenario or maybe a couple lake scenarios um, where growth rates uh, – are fast and and everything is good yeah i think i think number one it starts off with lake productivity you know the seems like the more nutrient rich lakes kind of um in the southern part of our county um that are more surrounded by agriculture they you know it all starts with primary production from the bottom of the food chain up you know there's just so much more growing opportunity in those lakes so so 
I guess we see faster growth rates in those very productive, shallower bodies of water that have, you know, consistent reproduction. They have a lot of aquatic vegetation. Um, but something else, you know, as anglers, we got to keep in mind that that a lot of times harvest is a good thing. You know, we have to responsibly harvest fish by, like we talked about, releasing, you know, those big bull bluegills and trying not to harvest a ton of fish over their beds and everything. But but actually some harvest is is good. It's beneficial. You know, it, it takes out some of that, some of the competition from the other fish and allows them to grow even faster. And that's why, you know, some of our lakes in the Southern part of the County too, that, that are shallower, we, we have partial winter kills and that actually leads to, to increased growth rates and a very, very productive fishery in, in years after that, because there's less competition. There's more available food for, for those fish to grow big and fast. Um, now, when you get into the northern part of the county, you know, fish can still get still get big. It's just, like I said, you know, a lot of times those eight-inch, nine-inch bluegills are are eight to nine years old, whereas in, in the southern, more productive waters, you know, eight, nine-inch bluegill could be five or six years old. So it's just a lot faster growth. But as mentioned before, you know, it's still very, very important to to release those those big bluegills to kind of sustain and control that that large size structure like crappies for example uh, when when we're talking about you know genetics and just kind of letting bigger fish go do you feel like do you feel like you know letting go a 13 plus inch crappie um is just as important to the crappie you know average size and you know the genetics being passed on as like bluegills or do you feel like that bluegill conversation is like is it definitely like a more important or, or like a, a, a bigger key to that species? Sure. I guess I, I'm speaking for Ottertail County, you know, it's my, where I grew up in, it's my, the area that I work, but for what we see with crappies is a little bit different than bluegills. Bluegills typically have pretty good consistent reproduction around here. Crappies is, is mostly cyclical, cyclical. Now there are some, lakes around the area that have consistent reproduction with crappies, but mostly what you see around here is you have one big strong year class. And, you know, once those fish get to be um, 10, 11, 12, 13 inches, um, the the word gets out and the fishing pressure is, is very high on those lakes and people are really harvesting a lot of fish. And then usually two, three, four years behind that year class is, is another successful year class of, of smaller fish. So those people are whacking 10, 11, 12, you know, 13 inch fish. And, and then once they stop catching them because of all the harvest, they disperse out to other area lakes that have a strong year class. And that actually gives that lake an opportunity for those, those fish, you know, those smaller fish to get to be that 10, 11, 12, 13 inches. And that allows them usually around, around our area, you know, a, a 10, a 10 inch crappie is, is going to be sexually mature and they can reproduce. So once, you know, once those, those crappies at 10, 11, 12 inches have tried to reproduce, you know, one or two or three times, it, I think it's okay to, to harvest, you know, some of the bigger ones. Now we, we, the problem is when you start harvesting those crappies at nine or 10 inches and they, you don't allow them that year of reproduction, that's when things can get, you know, kind of spinning in the downward direction because they, they just haven't had the opportunity to reproduce, but crappies are, are different you know and and we know that they they spawn a little bit earlier and they're more selective in the springtime of 
they're, they're, you know, they're more picky with the environmental conditions. They can actually go in and out of, of the shallows to back on the deeper weeds and everything multiple, multiple times if the environmental conditions aren't perfect for them. And some years they don't even spawn, you know, they actually reabsorb their eggs. So that's why you see these, this cyclical pattern of, of successful year class in the crappies is because of the environmental conditions around our area. Um, and, and we're, we are fortunate, you know, compared to some of the places like down in the cities where, where there's just so much fishing pressure, but our resources, you know, we can spread out that fishing, even fishing pressure quite a bit, even if you, you do have a lot of harvest on crappies on a certain lake, generally speaking, that pressure is going to be dispersed to other lakes in, in the years after that, allowing, you know, those fish to kind of recover for, for a few years and at least get a couple, you know, attempts at spawning before, before the harvest and the pressure comes back to that lake. How old do crappies have to be? Like, what's the average size of a crappie when it reaches sexual maturity? Uh, about four, four to five, I would say, around our area. So, they, yeah, they grow a lot faster, you know, than, than bluegills, generally speaking. They're, they're an eater size, quote unquote, or even like pushing the boundary of like 12 inches sometimes, depending upon growth rates, like how fast they get there. Sometimes before they've even had a chance to spawn one time, you're saying. Well, well, I would say that they reach sexual maturity, you know, around that 10, 10 inch range. On so average. That, correct. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That Give or take a little bit. Yep. So usually when they, you know, once they reach that 10 inch, you know, people haven't harvested them yet and they have had an opportunity to, to at least spawn, you know, one time or try to spawn one time. Yeah. I, I think that explains a lot. I've actually, I, I mean, maybe I'm the last person to hear this, but I, a lot of this stuff, like I haven't really conceptualized in my own life. Like no one's ever really explained it to me like this. So you're definitely teaching me a lot. Like, and growing up, you know, I, growing up in Ottertail County, the crappies are definitely cyclic. Like you can totally see lake to lake just by following the permanent fish houses and which lake where they go. Or even on the same lake, sometimes all the fish houses end up in one part, but next year it's a different part of the lake or, you know, whatever it is, like mm-hmm. wherever the fish kind of see less pressure, that's where the opportunity is down the road. Um, yeah, I think that, that that definitely explains a lot in my own head, just thinking about the memories of, but yeah, 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 yeah. Great stuff, man. Well, we're like, yeah, like time-wise, um, we're like out of time. So <laughs> I knew this was going to go by fast. I knew it. And um, I, yeah, I just, there's so much there to digest, especially for me. We, we've covered, you know, we're talking about, you know, basin habitat and also talking about invertebrates and, and you know, identifying invertebrates to help us know more about matching the hatch and understanding why, you know, some lakes set up a certain way where fish are suspending due to food source and, uh, you know, potentially oxygen levels, but just an optimal environment. And then on other lakes, there's no suspended fish and they're down at the bottom. You know, what the heck is going on? And, um, you know, I think that we've definitely got a lot to think about and, you know, thinking back on our own lakes, um, there's just a lot to think about there. Definitely covered everything and then some that I hoped we would. So if there's anything else, any other notes that you had or any points that you wanted to make uh, in the gist of this conversation, go ahead. We, you know, we'll make time for that. Otherwise, um, I think we can wrap this up, man. What do you think? 
Yeah, I just want to thank you for uh, for having me on here. It was it was fun, like I said, to learn you know about some of these topics and everything. One one thing I do want to point out is I talked about being responsible and ethical anglers, and and the more research that's coming out about barrel trauma, I think that's something that we all need to keep in mind that you know when we're fishing over the the deeper basins and everything, you know, if if you do see symptoms of of barrel trauma, you know, as eyes bulging or hemorrhaging around the gills or whatever, just kind of make a mental note that most of those fish, even if they do swim away, they're probably going to die from some kind of delayed mortality. So just, you know, just keep in mind that, that let's try to be responsible and, and, you know, only keep the fish that, or only keep fishing in that area with, with that in mind. Yeah. Excellent, excellent information. And for, uh, you know, it seems like, I don't know, is there an exact science to this? There must be in some way, shape, or form, because it seems like, you know, around that 28 to 30 foot mark, you know, if you're fishing at that or deeper depth, whether that's where the bottom is or whether that's where they're suspended at, seems to be where that stuff really starts showing up. Is there like, is there a more exact science to that? I don't know the answer to that. I think there's going to be more and more research um, regarding this topic, but yeah, it's something, something that will be interesting to to see what comes out here in the next several years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, definitely. I appreciate you throwing that in there. Great, great, great way to, to close this out. Um, And yeah, is there any, you know, talking about your research, like what are the links to on the DNR website or, or online to, um, you know, that, that people just ought to know if they don't know already, you know, to get in touch with the, you know, the fisheries department and all the information that you guys work so hard to produce for us. Um, where do they find all that? Yep. That's on the DNR, Minnesota DNR fisheries website, Lake Finder. You had mentioned that previously. The other thing that, that I encourage people to do, um, I'm more than willing to do it, but, but call in or email to your local area office. And most of the time they're going to be more than willing to, give you very pertinent information to you know to put you on fish to give you lakes that have good size structure good abundances but a lot of times people ask where are the fish biting and we always say call the call the bait shop because because we all wish that we could do a little bit more fishing ourselves but we can prov- provide you the information of you know what lakes to target so i would encourage you know to contact the area office of of the lake that you're going to be fishing yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that definitely, this was a big learning curve for me too. When you responded to my initial email, when I just threw all those different topics at you and you you so professionally replied, you know, just letting me know that, you know, some of this stuff wasn't your area of expertise. I wasn't even thinking that. Like, I'm just this average guy walking down the street. I feel like, a, you know, a, a, a fisheries guy just knows everything. You know, and and it was like, I think it's important to know and understand that it's a team of you guys that are all super smart at what you do. It's important that you're specialized in certain things. You know, no one person could know everything about all this stuff. You wouldn't have time to do it or execute it anyways. And so it's important that you all have and the the fact that you were able to go and talk to your counterparts and build up this information for me. But also um, it was just sort of, you know, I realized that there's more people that to talk to or have that have questions in it. I think that's a great, great promotion is to call in and it builds relations. If you're the type of person that walks around on the ice complaining about your fisheries department, but you've never emailed or called or you've never spoken to individuals like yourself, like, I mean, 
you're leaving that on the table and building that relationship is only a good thing. And those are great conversations to have. And yeah, you'd be surprised just how many of you guys uh, uh, like yourself are also anglers and have, can have a great fishing conversation on the side and point you in the right direction. So awesome. Awesome stuff, Luke. And uh, yeah, and I'll let you back to it, Luke. Appreciate your time. You bet. Take care. Laters.